please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. If it be God's good pleasure in two to three weeks' time, we will return to our history of the service of song and begin again to go back and forth between Revelation and the service of song. Uh, I, For most of you, I sent an email with links to the review sermons, what was, I think, 18 sermons. I had taught at a previous time the same material in about three sermons with less detail, and you can... Uh, see those online. For those of you that don't have that kind of internet access, there are also um, uh, CDs on the back table. Uh, Also, I forgot to mention, uh, Elder Uselding printed out Wiley's defense of um, the identification of the biblical Antichrist with the Roman bishop is back there. uh, A I wouldn't say an in-depth analysis, but rather a comprehensive one. He does survey the field of evidence that is pertinent. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. Power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with them. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And the white robes were given unto every one of them 
And it was said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal and lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? I thought that it would be helpful for us to take a review of our position in the book and indeed uh, review those uh, hints and suggestions that the Spirit gives on how this book is to be properly interpreted. I have told you before that I think that this book is frequently misinterpreted because interpreters are so anxious to get to chapter 6 that they neglect the teaching of chapters 1 through 5. But it is in those first five chapters that we are taught by the Holy Ghost how this book is to be interpreted. Flip back with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. This verse is very important in that it provides an outline for the entire book. And it's given to us by Christ himself. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So here is a, an outline provided by Christ himself of the things that John was to write. The outline has three principal parts. John was to write the things that he had seen. This was the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Addressed as a high priest and as a king, dwelling in the midst of the seven candlesticks representative of the churches. With the seven stars in his hand, even the uh, angels or the ministers of the churches. We have already looked at that first great division of the book. The second part is that John was to write the things which are. That was the present condition of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And we saw that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And then finally, John was to write the things that shall be hereafter. That begins with chapter 4. Chapters 4 and 5 set the visionary stage, as it were, upon which the revelation will be delivered. 
But you might notice in, in looking at this that the outline is somewhat unbalanced. One chapter for the first part, two chapters for the next part, and then the whole rest of the book in lump sum. We've been prepared for this as well. If you look back at chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, we were told in the very beginning of the book that the principal burden of its contents would be the future. Not all of which is future to us, I mean that which would be future to John. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. We were told at the very beginning that the principal burden would be to show uh, unto the servants of God things which must shortly come to pass. This is also another very important interpretive key. Things that must shortly come to pass are historical events. These are things that would actually happen in history. This would seem to uh, weed out at the start uh, the idealistic interpretation, the idea that these are simply historical dynamics rather than historical events. These are actually historical events, things that must come to pass, and things that were future to John, although they seemed as if their fulfillment would be uh, right on the heels of the revelation, things that must shortly come to pass. This book is now to be open. And read, as the Lord says, for the time is at hand. This is uh, in contrast with what was said to Daniel. Daniel, who began this vision, uh, is, it's now going to be completed by John. But for Daniel, it was a closed book and its meaning left obscure. Go thy way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Daniel 12, 9. So now the book is no longer closed up and sealed, but rather opened and to be read and understood. Because in Daniel's time it said that it's for the time of the end. But now that end, the end of the matter is at hand. With Revelation and the events contained therein, we enter into the final movement of history. We are no longer waiting for it, but rather it is a present and unfolding reality from John's time to the present time and even to the end of the world. We have, over the past handful of months, been looking very carefully at Revelation chapters 4 and 5. This is, as it were, the introduction to the prophetic future. Here we have, if I can borrow the language of uh, the theater, the setting of the stage. 
which is very important if we are to understand what follows. John's position on this stage is very important. And as we go through, we're going to have to have constant reference back to it. This is another reason that this is so frequently misunderstood. These chapters, 4 and 5, are also frequently neglected. John is, in his vision, standing at the threshold or at the doorway, looking into the holy place. Uh, So you want to think of this in uh, temple or tabernacle imagery but not the physical and earthly tabernacle but rather the spiritual realities that are in view in that tabernacle he is standing there and he is able to look in and we shouldn't be surprised that there is no longer any veil barring the way into the holy of holies John is able to see the throne in the earthly tabernacle represented by the Ark of the Covenant. He has a clear sight of it. You remember at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the veil was rent. And as the author of Hebrews said, access was given into that uh, through the veil of his flesh. Uh, And we are able to approach now with boldness, having access through the blood of the eternal covenant. Surrounding that that throne are um, the 24 elders dressed once again as kings and priests representative of the 24 courses of priests and Levites but here not serving by course but all together representative of the entire church of the living God there are closer than those 24 the four living creatures If you remember our exposition, representative of the ministers of the church, they proclaim the glory of God. And as they do so, the people of God are stirred up to worship. There is in that place the menorah, the Holy Spirit of the living God, illumining the church and animating it. You have the glassy pavement before the throne, uh, reflecting that great glory of uh, the throne. It must have certainly been a a beautiful and glorious sight. The principal activity, here we have the hidden spiritual life of the church, the principal activity of which is worship. Revelation chapter 4 closes with them worshiping the eternal and almighty creator and governor of all that is. And they give the chief end of all things, which we've recently had in a sermon. For thy pleasure they are and were created. Because thou didst will it, and because it seemed good in thy sight, all these things have been created, made, and governed. When we turn to Revelation chapter 5, the scene becomes more specific to the matter that will follow. We are moving toward the unfolding of the history, the revelation of God's will for His church in history. It is portrayed as being closed up in a scroll that is in the right hand of the Father. This is the prophetic history of God's special providence toward His church. 
And it's the contents of this scroll that form the rest of the book from chapter 6 and forward. So it's the breaking of the seven seals and the unfolding of the scroll. That is the content of the rest of uh, Revelation. John has a problem. You remember in Revelation chapter 1, this uh, was portrayed as a revelation open and to be read by men. And yet when it is presented in vision, it is presented as a book sealed. And sealed with seven seals, that is completely sealed up from the eyes of uh, the creature. And a challenge comes from a mighty angel who is worthy to take the scroll to break its seals and to reveal its contents. And there is no creature found able or worthy to do so. And so John mourns. Uh, I wonder, just by way of digression, as we will see going forward, John is not just the scribe of the vision, but he also plays a role in it symbolically. He is representative of what we might call apostolical men in successive ages. Uh, Ministers and perhaps even um, ordinary believers that hold fast to apostolic doctrine. He uh, is representative of them. And I wonder if his mourning over the closed book represents something that was going on during the the reign of Domitian. We do not have much in the way of historical records of the time. But the church is being persecuted once again. And you can imagine among ministers and people there being an intense interest to know what the end of these matters might be, both in the short and in the long term. And for these things to be sealed up and unknown was uh, something of a grief to them. But I digress. John is grieving, but he's uh, approached by one of the 24 elders and encouraged not to mourn because Christ has been found worthy, fully God and fully man, prophet, priest and king. And this becomes an occasion for worship. We see first the worship in the church of the living God. And we have a spiritual view of them. Hearts full of prayer and praise. They fall down and they sing what is portrayed as a new song. It gives us the content of their worship. They declare Christ's worthiness to take the book and to reveal its contents. And then they demonstrate that uh, worthiness through a threefold argument. First, that he was slain. Second, that he had redeemed a church to himself, a universal church out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And third, that he is able to make his people kings and priests unto the Most High. And then it's as if our view broadens and we are suddenly aware that the church is surrounded by an innumerable company of angels that also join in the worship chorus praising the lamb that was slain. And then finally, it's as if all of the creation, all of heaven and earth and all the inhabitants of all places echo 
that praise and give glory unto God, each according to its place, each according to its calling, all of creation uh, reflecting God's glory to His praise. This brings us to Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Look there with me if you will. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. So you will remember Christ had taken the book. He has been declared worthy to break its seals, and now he does so. This begins with John saying, And I saw. So this is John's visionary experience and its contents. He sees the Lamb break the first of the seals. So the scroll of special providence, which had been sealed up, shut up from the eyes of the creature, is now going to be opened. Something that uh, no one could do. No creature is able to predict with any sort of certainty future events. We can do so. We can observe causes and we can sometimes predict into the short uh, future, but not then, unerringly. But for such complex system of events to be revealed, dependent upon so many factors, known and unknown to men, for, uh, for such things to be revealed is certainly a divine work. You remember the very beginning of the book that it God gave to Christ to reveal these things. This uh, reminds us of a doctrine. We won't stay long here just now, but in God's providence, uh, according to what we have in the sermons, it's been the Lord's good pleasure to make this something of a focus this morning. Jesus Christ is the great prophet of the church. And it was not my intention to emphasize it this morning, but rather in all of the texts and the material, this has been the great focus. Christ was able to reveal here in our text when no mere creature could reveal. And so it is given to us to admire and adore Him, the great prophet of the church. We will come back to this. And perhaps it's in as much as the Lord has been pleased to emphasize it We should think about the course of our lives and what the Lord might be teaching each one of us individually concerning his prophetic office. Why is it that the Lord has seen fit to give us such a large reminder of this precious truth this morning? Let us consider our ways. John goes on. He's told us what he's seen and now what he hears. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. The first of the four living creatures cries out. And you remember uh, the living creatures are representative of the ministers of the gospel. They are set down here in an order that agrees with Revelation chapter 4 verse 7 if you look back. And the first beast was like a lion. And the second beast like a calf and so on. So this lion-like beast is portrayed as crying out first. I'll come back to this, uh, Lord willing, next week. 
But this might indicate something of the lion-like courage of the ministers of that first age. In the midst of a hot and intense persecution and yet boldly asserting the gospel. And their preaching showed itself to be powerful like the rolling of thunder. Here all of the kings and princes of the earth are dead set against the gospel, Jew and Gentile, and yet without drawing a sword or firing a shot, this gospel begins to advance in the earth with great power indeed, like the rolling of the thunder. It does seem to be that in the mouth of these preachers is the very voice of God himself. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 5, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. So here the voice of the living God is found to be in their mouths as they preach and proclaim the everlasting gospel and the crown rights of King Jesus to rule over all. And in that age there were a great many conversions, even surprising conversions. Indeed, we have records and memorials of people being converted even while they were watching Christians persecuted to the death and joining them immediately in the arena to suffer unto the death. This was a powerful word indeed greatly blessed by God. There's yet another doctrine here that I don't want to delay with but something to encourage that God proportions his gifts to the work that the church has to do. So in that age when the church needed men of great courage by his gifting he granted that courage so that the ministers and the people might overcome the obstacles to the glory of God. And finally the message here of this mighty minister was that John was to come and see. He calls upon John to attend carefully to the vision that he would witness. And it is really this last uh, bit of the scripture that provides our use this morning. Let us give our attention to God's word read and preached so that we might receive it unto the saving and edification of the soul. We find here this minister doing what ministers are called to do. He's stirring up John to give his attention, a diligent attention, to the heavenly vision. As I was sitting and trying to think on John's condition at this point, I seriously doubt that he was sleepy or lethargic in his attention. I don't think that this is the problem. And I don't think that this is the reason that the the, uh, angelic minister here endeavors to rouse him up. But rather the vision is complex. It is detailed in its imagery. It is profound in its significance and difficult to understand. So John will need to rouse all of his powers of concentration and theological insight in order to uh, first grasp the vision. In other words, to gain it and to know its details and be able to write them for us, as well as to gain, as far as was appropriate for him, some measure of understanding 
of the heavenly vision. We know that in the Scriptures there is material of a diversity of complexity. Some things in the Scripture are evident and plain on the surface, the way the prophets would say it, that God, I think it's Isaiah, tells Isaiah to write it in a scroll so that he that runs may read. In other words, write it with such plainness that even a man who's in a hurry and half distracted might read it and understand it. There are some things in the Scripture that are that plain and that easy to understand. But some things in the Scripture are complex, difficult, deep, and I mean this reverently, dark, hard to understand, hard to peer into. And they require a high exercise of concentration and disciplined focus in order to master them. And here the... um, minister would rouse John up to that sort of effort and that sort of exercise. Our confession of faith summarizes this truth in this way. You should have it in your outline. Confession of faith 1.7 All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. As the divines say here, some things in the scripture are plain. And then they give us a particular example. Those things that pertain to our salvation are clearly opened in the scripture in some place or other. So that a normal person, even an unlearned person, through a due use of the ordinary means, can attain to a sufficient understanding of those things. That's their principal focus, but they also acknowledge that there are some other things that are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike plain to everyone. The scripture has its mysteries, its difficulties that exercise us. St. Augustine, and this has become a famous saying, Augustine many ages ago said that the, the scriptures had uh, their pools in which lambs wade and their depths in which elephants swim. And so it is even the little lamb can wade in these pleasant pools of the gospel. But the greatest intellects in the history of the world have yet not searched the scriptures to the bottom. And every age still has work to do to master the learning of former ages and if it be God's will to advance and go forward in the understanding of the scriptures. And it will ever be so until the Lord's second coming. And the, uh, the ancients in reasoning this out said that it's necessary that some things be plain and easy if men are to attain unto a competent knowledge of salvation, even plain and unlearned people. And yet that there be mysteries is also necessary so that men would not despise or look down upon the scriptures as if they were mean and worthy of very little consideration. 
Well, we see here that even the apostle needs to be stirred up for the matters before him are difficult. And we'll find that he's not only stirred this one time, but four times. And not just those four times, but again and again throughout the course of the book. This sets before us something of the minister's duty. And here this minister provides an example for us. He stirs up John by his thunderous voice and it is ever the responsibility of ministers to stir the people of God up to learn the Scriptures, to learn the heavenly vision, even in its difficulties. We have the example of it here, but it's true in the very nature of the case. Is it not true that ministers have a responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God? Is this not true? Well, certainly it is. Is it not also true that parts of the Scripture are difficult? Well, certainly it is so. So ministers, by necessary consequence, are responsible to teach even the difficult parts and to rouse the people of God up to the challenge of the mastery of those. I have to say that in my own experience, this is very much against the grain. In evangelicalism, there is a great desire to make everything simple. And if you have been around me for very long, you know that I'll say that if a thing can be had in an easy way, let's have it in the easiest way possible. But some things cannot be had in an easy way. Some things can only be had in difficulty, with effort and attention and diligence, like wisdom. If wisdom was a thing easy to be had, everyone would be wise. But you only get wisdom by searching after it, like like a man who searches after hidden treasures is the way that it is. Does every man discover a diamond mine? Well, certainly not. A diamond mine is going to be discovered by a man who looks for it and looks for it with some diligence and attention. And so it is with some truths of the scripture. There is no easy way. Just the path of exercise and diligence and protracted effort. I should say that this has been my experience even among the Reformed. And I have frequently over... Uh, the past 10 years of ministry been reproved some, sometimes by common people and sometimes by other ministers that the preaching is too difficult if I make the, the truths of scripture more difficult than they need to be then certainly this is a great shame to me but it's ever been my endeavor to handle the things that are simple and to portray them simply but also to handle the things that are difficult and still portray them just as simply as I can imagine uh, portraying them. But the simple fact of the matter is I do not have leave, nor do you, to retreat from the difficult matters. Even as the minister summons us, come and see, come and give your attention to these difficult things. So I concede we must continue to do the basic lessons of Christianity, 
they're not to be neglected. Those who are new to the faith and children need them. And we all need them constantly repeated and reinforced. This is true. But we are also to go forward in the whole counsel of God. And this includes the difficult portions. We are called upon to come and see and to consider these things and understand them. If this is my duty to declare the whole counsel of God, even its difficult parts, there is a corresponding duty in the hearers. If it's my duty to proclaim these things, then it is the duty of those that hear to give their attention. So as I said, a minister should exercise himself to make all things in Scripture as plain as possible. But the auditory, the hearers, are to exercise themselves to learn, to understand, and to receive. And this only comes by exercise. Sometimes uh, analogies are are useful. Uh, if we were if we were a football team and I was the quarterback and you, my wide receivers. I can practice and practice and practice throwing an accurate pass. But at some point, you must also practice catching or we are not going to complete very many passes. I might bounce one off your face mask or off your shoulder pads. Balls that should be caught but are not caught if you don't practice. And so for preaching, uh, for preaching to bear its due fruit, it's not just the preacher that must be exercised and practiced, but the hearers as well. This is an aspect of loving God with all of our minds. This is an aspect of the renewal of the mind that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. Exercise, hard work, discipline. This uh, truth is summarized for us in our larger catechism, which should also be in your outline, Westminster Larger Catechism 160. What is required of those that hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they have heard by the Scriptures, Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. This is indeed a a good and full summary and worthy of some further meditation it talks about us preparing to receive the word uh, by prayer and diligence you could add to that stirring ourselves up stirring up our hunger for God's word so that when we come we might be attentive as the preaching is going on we're continually examining it by the scriptures is this uh, the proper explanation and application of the text that is in front of us. So while we're hearing preaching, we're examining it and comparing it against the Scriptures. If we have further questions, we might go on comparing it against 
the Scriptures in the coming days. But we shouldn't let the preaching fall to the ground either. But do that comparison and not neglect it. What we find to be true is to be received in faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind, not as the word of man, but as the very word of God. We'll come to this soon in our our sermons in the doctrine of the church. But preaching, uh, Peter says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so the uh, Westminster divines call preaching the very word of God in this regard. If it is a faithful explanation of its contents, if doctrine is faithfully derived either immediately or by good and necessary consequence from the word of God, an application faithfully made, then this is the very word of God. And so it's to be received as such. We are to meditate upon it privately and confer of it, discuss it with others. That's another way that we help to work it into our hearts is through discussion with others. Something of the lost art of Christian conversation. And then we are to hide it in our hearts and then do it. Bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. I wanted to conclude this morning with a warning and with an encouragement. First, the warning. You can be sure that the Lord will complain against us if He finds us to be slothful disciples. He will complain of it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle has begun his comparison between the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and that of Melchizedek in those early ages of the world. And he has more things to say about it, but he interrupts himself. Verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. This passage has some, some famous difficulties in it and with the turn to verse 4 it gets even more difficult. But there are some things that we can take right from the surface 
of this text as certainties and things that are not difficult to be derived. We learn here that the school of Jesus Christ is just like any other school. When you come to the end of the eighth grade, there's normally an exam that is representative of a certain amount of material that at that point you should have mastered based on the lessons that you were given and the time that you were given to do them you ought to have mastered this material if you have mastered it then very good you get your passing grade if you have not mastered the material you get an F which is a form of a complaint of the teacher against you that in spite of the fact that you've been delivered the lessons and been given every advantage and proper time for the learning of them you have not learned them See the complaint in verse 12 of chapter 5. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. First he says that by this time, with respect to these truths, you ought to be able to teach them. But instead of being able to teach them, you have need of somebody to come and teach you even more basic things than these. And this is to your shame as disciples. And then he goes on to uh, draw a comparison. By now you ought to be full-grown adults and ready for meat, but you are still, as it were, acting as babes that made milk. And it ought not to be so. And how are you going to ever have uh, the discretion of an adult to have your senses exercised to determine between good and evil if you are not feasting upon the meat of God's word? And so then he gives this project. We are going to go on beyond these basic doctrines and go on to those more sophisticated ones. And we will do so if God permits us to do so. So I offer this as a warning that the Lord will complain if we are not diligent in our discipleship. Just like any other school, the school of Christ has its exams and by a certain time you ought to have mastered certain lessons. And He will complain if we don't. Indeed, for the wise, I offer this as a goad, as a cattle prod. We must go on in the truth of the Scripture. But by way of encouragement, uh, look there in your larger catechism 155. How is the word of God made effectual to salvation? The spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of enlightening, convincing and humbling sinners of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. First of all, we are encouraged because it is the law of God that converts the heart if we do entertain any uh, desire for a heavenly home there is no other way to that heavenly home than the teaching of the scripture 
that delivery of the gospel. And notice here that the divines point out that reading, indeed, but not just reading, but the principle means that God has always used for the conversion of the soul has been the preaching of the word of God. God first sent out preachers long before he ever gave the printing press. Preachers before uh, before books. And so uh, we need to give our attention to these things and be encouraged in these things. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Search the scripture, for ye believe that in those ye have life. Find life. And you do. So if you would have eternal life in heaven with God, then we must go time and time again to the scriptures that contain that gospel of eternal life. But for those of us who have been some time in the faith, it is in the scriptures read, but again, primarily by means of the preaching of the scriptures that we find our sanctification and growth in Christ. Attached to preaching has always been the promise of a peculiar blessing. Reading the scriptures at home is good and it does have a blessing. Reading books about the scriptures has a blessing attached to it. But God has always promised a peculiar blessing attached to preaching. You want to think of it in that form when uh, God told Moses that he would meet with Moses above the mercy seat. He gave him that promise. In preaching, he has promised to meet with us, to speak to us by that word. And even in that, that context, to give unto us faith, to give his elect faith so that we might believe to the saving of the soul and then feed us so that we might be strong and well. And one final encouragement. This is the heavenly life with the Savior now. What could be more precious to the Christian heart than to speak to Him by our prayers and have Him speak to us in the reading of the Scriptures and in their preaching? This is the beginning of eternal life. If you have an opportunity, next time you go go through the Gospel of John, I want you to notice that Jesus Christ in that Gospel usually speaks of eternal life not as a future thing, but as a current possession that we have already entered into uh, eternal life. Eternal life already begun. So with the warning behind us and these encouragements before us, let us go forward in our work of discipleship. Let us pray together.